Hey gang, welcome back to another week of Ranching Reboot. For this week, we go out to California to visit a ranch that's been around since 1897. But before we get into that, last week I mentioned some of the new links that are showing up in the show notes page. One of those is my link tree. Well, I've made a few changes. If you haven't seen that yet, it's just one easy place to keep all my links. So what are you going to find on my link tree? Links to where you can subscribe to this podcast on several different platforms. And I also have links to all my other social media on there. Then way down at the bottom, there's a collection of links to various platforms. You can either make a one-time donation in cash or Bitcoin, or you can also check out my Patreon page. On Patreon, I have several subscriber tiers. And I tell you, if you're one of the first few to sign up, just tell me what you want and we can try to make that a reality. I'd love to do more podcasts and bonus content. Benefits under consideration, including, but are not limited to, periodic invitations to Zoom for the actual recording of the podcast, being able to ask questions. How about a live Q&A with me? How about maybe a roundtable with some previous guests? Let me know. We can work on it. Head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher, unless you want this space full of me reading ads. Without further ado, today's guest is a man whose energy seems to know no bounds. Native from just north of the Bay Area, Lauren Poncha from Stemple Creek Ranch. Lauren Poncha, good to see you, buddy. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Um, you know, I don't do too many of these first thing in the morning. So I woke up this morning, you've got two inches of snow, it's 25 degrees and a 45 mile an hour north wind. So I'm looking forward to getting out and feeding cows here in a little bit. Well, um, I can't say the same here. It's still dark outside here and uh, it's about 40 degrees probably. And it's going to be epic sunshine, probably about 60 in the middle of the day. And our grass is about this tall right now in a lot of places so we're loving it right now but we're we are in a pretty major drought um and it's hard to say that when you look at my grass but uh the hill country is is drying up fast and we haven't had a rain event in almost three months and um this is the dead of winter so we should be having rain you know a couple times a week yeah and see we're the other way here like winter is generally our dry season um, and I like to have, I was just looking at my drought plan the other day and I like to have like four inches before April 1st and before the moisture that started last night, we had about an inch and a half. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so it's, it's pretty gruesomely dry. So before we get too much deeper in this, Lauren, why don't you tell our listeners where you're at? Um, yeah, I'm Lauren Pontius, Stemple Creek Ranch, and I'm in Northern California where I'm sitting right now is the old schoolhouse. Uh, that I went to preschool in, and uh, it's about 56 miles north of San Francisco, straight north on the coast, or about four miles from the ocean. Nice, nice. So your family's been there for quite a while, haven't they? Uh, my family, yeah, legacy started here in 1897. My great-grandfather immigrated from Garzano, Italy, with the sole purpose of coming to this area to raise food for the Bay Area. Um, which is pretty cool. So I'm the fourth generation. My kids are the fifth generation. Well, actually, Brian, you've been here. You you got to see it when it was in good shape back in April, uh, a few years ago. Yeah, that was great. I really uh, I really enjoyed that tour. Um, and I was sitting here this morning getting ready for this, trying to trying to remember some things about that tour and some some good questions to ask you. Um, so what do you do there on Stemple Creek Ranch? Um, well, Stemple Creek Ranch, 
right now is our brand that's basically go to market, but we raise uh, beef cattle, uh, grass-fed beef, um, lamb, grass-fed lamb, and pork. It's pasture-raised pork. But the beef is a big majority of our business. Um, um, and we harvest that and sell it direct to consumers really all over the nation, but also um, mostly Bay Area-centric and, and California-centric is the majority of our business. Right. And, you know, I can only imagine what it would be like living that close to that much population that's concerned about their health and, and wants to, and wants to eat better. So can you talk about like maybe some of the experiences you've had in the last couple of years with people um, from the city that don't know much about their food production and the, and the food production cycle that you've, uh, that you, that you've been selling to that have changed their viewpoint on food, I guess. Well, you know, uh, Brian, what you bring up there is pretty, is a pretty interesting point because it's very easy for us in agriculture to assume that people don't know anything about agriculture. And it's really the exact opposite here in the Bay area. In my opinion, everything, I'll probably refer to it more than once today, but everything is a bell shaped curve, right? Ranchers, right ranchers people you know consumers and you got the extreme right and extreme left and uh in this area our number one customer already knows quite a bit about agriculture and about regenerative agriculture and the reasons why they want grass-fed and you know the difference between grass-fed and grass-finished and a lot of that are there's some very sophisticated well-educated uh, people out here that have money that want um, to vote with their dollars and support what they think is the right thing. Um, and they're, they're already really educated. That being said, well, we have this great space out here at the ranch and we're super blessed, honestly, we're super blessed to be able to be this close to a big population. Cause I know a lot of our friends that we, bo we both know all over the country, they're you know, 10 hours from a kill plant or 10 hours from a major, uh, a major city. You can't do what we're doing um, as simply uh, when you're in the middle of Nebraska as, as if you're you know, an hour and a half from the Golden Gate Bridge or an hour from the Golden Gate Bridge. So um, we open up our ranch a lot to help educate that section of the consumer that you were talking about um, that isn't very, you know, it doesn't know a lot about agriculture or maybe thinks that cows are cause global warming and you know all of these types of things and uh we're really blessed to be able to to be able to help get people to come to the farm and we have a competitive advantage to sell our meat because we're right here people can do a day trip they can come and stay at the ranch we have three little airbnbs here they can break bread with us and drink a glass of wine and uh, eat some steak together and hear our whole story. They can, if they, if they want to, frankly, they can go out in the middle of the field and say, I want cow number one, two, three, four in a year and a half. And I'd say, sure, everything, I'll do whatever you want. So we're, we're basically trying to adapt and change to um, tell our story and educate people on the environmental benefits of, um, the, of what we're doing. And at the same time, um, provide a super nutrient dense, high quality food that we feel good about 
raising and that consumers feel good about buying and feeding their families. Okay. So how do we know that it's nutrient dense food? Because that's what I say it is. <laughs> I don't confuse you with the facts. It's nutrient dense food. Beef in a feedlot's nutrient dense food. Beef in a uh, out in a uh, beef out in a pasture is nutrient dense food. Um, beef in general is very nutrient dense. And I'm a um, a disciple of Diana Rogers and love her work. And I think she tells a good a very good story and an accurate story about there is no other there is no other food on the planet that is. Um, full of vitamins, nutrients, and minerals. And you can get into an argument about whether it's, you know, the right kind of fats, you know, um, uh, more, more. Um, like the difference uh, between omega-3 yeah, and omega-6. Exactly. More omega-3s and less omega-6s and all that. And I don't really go there. I say, you know, our, our beef tastes, tastes great. It's better for the animal. It's better for the, for the planet because we're actually creating photosynthesis. And and it's better for the people eating it. I don't get into all the details of why, and you know, we have more beta carotene and all this stuff because I'm not 100% sure all of that is 100% accurate all the time. So I'd rather just be honest about it. Um, honesty, transparency, and quality are like our core tenants. I want them to taste that meat and say, man, that's the best beef I've ever tasted. And what, like what they better see. than what I got from Walmart or exactly. And like what they see and like us and want to support us. And I don't want to get too confused or make it us versus them. I just want people to eat more meat. And be before our time is over, we should talk about that too, because the amount of vegans that we've converted to eat meat is, is stunning. Um, so we can talk more about that before our, our time's over. Well, let's, let's talk about it. I think it's, like you were talking about nutrient density and one of the, one of the things that we need to remember those of us that are kind of in this, you know, regenerative sphere is not to talk down to other production methods and not to try to demonize or attack other production methods, just to present the, the other side of the story. Like this is what we do. And this is why not saying that other way is bad or that, that, you know, the other thing is bad but this is just how we do it. And this is why. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm not a big fan of throwing stones, especially in the industry. And I, I look at our industry and I'm like, son of a gun. All the time I get people saying, Oh, you guys are grass fed. You know, I have tons of friends in the industry that are, you know, feedlot operators all the way down to grass fed people like me. And it's like, Hey guys, we're working. We should be working together to get more people to eat beef in general, because the more people that eat beef, they're gonna eat grain fed, grass fed, whatever, and it's better for the whole industry. And some people might, you know, frankly, I work with a lot of other producers that they actually, uh, um, they actually raise some cattle for me as part of our program, but they're pretty conventional producers. You know, a bunch of their cattle go into feedlots and, you know, corn, um, corn fed beef and you know a small section of 10 10 percent or so of their um, herd comes to me before it goes to a feedlot and so it's like you know we can do both and the part about that that um, to me is kind of crazy is right now the industry the grass-fed industry and and you would have to fact check me on this but it's 
I think I'm pretty close plus or minus 10%. There's like, like 85 plus percent of the beef, the grass fed beef that's in grocery stores and consumers are eating here in America through places like butcher box and home delivery services. It's, it's foreign beef. It's coming from other countries. And it's like, hello. I don't need to fact check you on that one. That's, that's close enough. It's like, come on guys. Why do we want to, you know, import all this other grass fed beef when we could be making a premium at the farm level um, and then export all of our really good stuff to China or, you know, Hong Kong or, you know, Japan is, it's, it's kind of silly, the system right now, um, but it is what it is. And, and really the whole reason why I'm doing this grass-fed, grass-finished beef is because I had to figure out a way to make a living here on the ranch with only a finite amount of acres. Okay. And, I mean, we can talk for the whole, the whole show just about that too. Um, That's a situation that, that a lot of guys are in. You know, they've reached the right. carrying capacity of the cows. They can't add more cows to the ranch where we can agree that, you know, if you don't have enough grass for your cows to eat, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go buy a bunch of hay to haul hay out to your cows in the middle of the pasture. So it's, you know, you have to maximize the resource that you've got. Once you've maximized the production on your resource, you've got to start maximizing the return on that. And, you know, if you're not a 10,000 acre outfit in the Nebraska sandhills anymore, that's selling pot loads of calves, you got to find some of these direct marketing channels. Right. And, and, Consumers are consumers are uh, begging for it. Really, it's not the whole set of consumers. You know, not probably not the flyover states, but both sides of the country and um, you know any any hubs of people, large large numbers of people, they're begging to know where the food comes from. Even so. here in flyover country, we're seeing increased demand for grass fed. We're seeing increased demand for consumers wanting to connect with the story of their food and directly connect with the producer like it's it's spreading here but i wouldn't say that the the adoption rate is what it is where you are or the or the the percentage of people it's it's probably lower than where you are and i could be wrong i mean it could be just a pretty much you know kind of an even level all across the country it just doesn't seem like that out here because (laughs) you know we don't have we don't have five million people living forty minutes away. Well, get ready though. Get ready because what's happened. I mean, again, we'll probably talk about this later. We have a lot of time to talk, but I mean, there's a mass exodus of California, and they're going all the places where you're all at right now, and and messing everything up in one way. But they're also a whole new set of consumers that's used to eating one way. You know, it's maybe a huge opportunity. So I always look at things. You know, is this an opportunity or a threat, and what's the best way to handle it but i mean we were basically growing up here in the business we were basically making enough money that we could do it for one more year and then we'd make enough money that we could do it for one more year and my background when i went away to college uh i was dead set on coming home be a full-time rancher and around my junior year i realized there was no economic opportunity for me at home unless i wanted to come home live with my parents and uh, make a thousand bucks a month, like a farmhand or whatever, or less, then it was like, nah. So we had to bring a new enterprise to our current operation. And, and before today's over, I'd love to talk to you about all the different stacked enterprises we do here at Stemple, but- It's um, on my list, I wanna talk about it. Okay, cool. So we, um, I went away 
after um, during college, you know, I, I had to figure out what to do to make a living. And I actually did some internships uh, with veterinary pharmaceutical companies. And I went and uh, I went and moved to Texas, Florida, Georgia, Montana, Wyoming, and then the Central Valley of California. And I sold veterinary pharmaceuticals. And I did that for 18 years. But I still had my fingers in the ranch business. So I'd fly home on the weekends or I'd, I'd drive over and, and do, uh, um, do ranch work. And I was making most of the decisions. But it, as you can imagine, working with your family and then you make a decision and then you leave for a week and you come back and nothing has been done, it can get very frustrating, right? And um, so that was a challenge. And my real passion, no matter where I was around the country, was the ranch and trying to make agriculture go. And um, so about, geez, oh, geez, about 15, 17 years ago now, I was around my 30th birthday and I'm 47. So I came home to my wife in Sacramento. We were living there, double income, no kids, had a great life. Um, and I came home from working on the ranch one weekend and I said, hey, Lisa, we gotta go back home and try and make this a real business. And I'm perfectly fine if we go home, try and make it a real business and fail. But if we don't try, I don't want to wake up when I'm 60 one day and be like, what if I would have done this? You know, I've heard enough of that in my life. And so thankfully she said, yes. And we moved over here. And uh, well, actually we met with my parents. Uh, my parents were on the ranch. I was living in Sacramento. We met in Napa halfway. And we said, Hey mom and dad, we want to come home. And, uh, and we want to take over the ranch. And they were like, oh, this is great. And I said, but quite frankly, we don't want to do it with you. We want to buy all your cattle and lease all your land. And you're going to make more money than you are right now running it. And you're, and you're going to have a better lifestyle um, and less risk if you just let us take over and roll with it. And that was a massive conversation, as probably many of your listeners <laughs> can attest to. And the old guard or the next generation doesn't even want to show their debt to their cards a lot of times. And, and it's a real challenge. But for us, it was like, hey, we're either going to do this here at home or we're going to move to Colorado or somewhere else and we're going to do it there. And and they saw that and they had confidence in us and they stepped aside. And it was a miserable for about five years with family dynamics because we went from having, you know, 180 mama cows and five fields you know and we'd bring hay to them all winter and you know all that to putting all the mom and cows together and having a big mob and having 100 pastures rotating around and my dad was like you are batshit crazy what you're doing <laughs> and i think i was too at the time but i was like well this is what i'm doing you know and and a lot of a lot of it was just luck and a lot of it was just i made tons of mistakes and i tried not to make them the same ones twice but so that was kind of how we got started out here on 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 that and that was um 17 years ago i guess okay what are your folks up to now my folks are still here they're super proud of us um they're, my dad's 82 my mom's 78 they're our biggest cheerleaders um but they have nothing to do with the business they just cash a red check and my dad comes over once in a while there's three ranches right next to each other. And um, he comes over once in a while and goes, hey, why don't you do this, this, and this? And say, hey, thanks, Dad. That's a great idea. But I'm not going to do it because of 
this, this, and this. And once in a while, there's a really good idea. And he, but, and I do rely on him some for just gut feel, but most of the time it's, it's his fingerprints aren't on any of our decisions. Um, and that's, it's, I love him to death, but I don't like it. I don't really love any of his business <laughs> ideals or philosophies. It's all about work harder, work harder, work harder, make less, less money and less good decisions, frankly. So. Yeah, that's, that's a mentality that uh, hopefully will be going away with uh, hopefully be going away very soon is, Oh, we just, let's just work harder. All you gotta do is just work harder and everything will be fine. Just work harder and you'll make more money and everything will be fine. Yeah. You're not busy enough, well, go find something else to do to make more money. Yeah. Well, I grew up in that in that paradigm and it wasn't very good because there's not none of my peers are back on, home on the ranch. You know, I grew up in a pretty agricultural community and there's nobody doing what I'm doing. Maybe, maybe one or two guys, you know. Um I, I was kind of asking, are, yeah. are you the only weirdo in the community that's doing, you know, high, high density, high frequency rotation grazing? Um, I'm one of the few, but we have, I mean, nobody's doing it as intensively as I am, but um, there is a lot of people that talk to our NRCS agents and talk to other, you know, type, you know, local like leaders and say, Hey, what's Lauren doing over there? I want to do that. And they don't know how to do it quite yet, but there's a lot of people and I'm open book. I share with whatever, but they don't ask me, you know, it's a neighbor, neighborly thing to know back. Lauren, show me what you're doing here. Why are you doing that? You know, um, I would love it in the next few years. If, you know, even doing some field days and stuff and sharing what we're doing, because I learn a lot and I make, you know, I'm making tons of mistakes all the time that I would, hopefully be able to help them not make. Um, but there's more and more producers that are um, applying compost to their pastures. There's more and more producers that are splitting up their pastures and having more pastures. Not enough, but more than one, um, which is great. Um, start, four's a good place to be. Eight would be yeah. better. <laughs> yeah, right, right. If you have 12, you can really make some progress. Um, but definitely I get it every spring. People are like, man, you're wasting all that grass. I'm like, actually, I'm not wasting it because we need cover. And, and then come, you know, November, December, when it did rain, you can see like right now I have feed that's, you know, really tall and really lush, almost too lush. And you look over the neighbor's fence and it's like, you know, less than a golf course. And, um, and then I'm you see like, him driving well, out there hauling a hay bale, and then you go to the coffee shop later, and he's talking crap on the way you manage your pastures. They don't usually talk crap around me. It's usually when I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but the analogy I use is like, hey, I, I don't feed cows very much. We feed a little bit of hay, but I personally don't feed any of it. I have an employee that does it. And every time I send that employee out with a truck to feed, you know, it's it cost me probably a hundred dollars by the time you get wear and tear diesel uh, you know every single string of wire of, of rope is five bucks five ten fifteen you know when you throw ten of those things off you just you know you just it was a five hundred dollar morning and we had no gain to show we were just keeping animals alive so it's really changed my paradigm and i i know it sounds like you've had dallas on here i haven't listened to all your shows but um 
you know, the ranching for profit. I'm a big disciple of ranching for profit and um, the school and, you know, most of the principals, I mean, 99% of the principals. And um, yeah, they've really, they've really, the school really made me just question why I do things and if it's the right thing economically or if it's the right thing socially or if it's the right thing um, to make it more easy for me to do my work or if it's a lifestyle. And our business, this is my full-time business. So it's not a lifestyle. It's a business. I got to make money and I got to be able to leave for months at a time and have it still run. And I think that's important right there, what you just said. You're running it as a business and not a lifestyle. I think that there's a lot of people that are in, let's just say, the cattle business or want to own cows because they want to own cows because uh, they want the romance or they want to be a cowboy. And to guys like you and me, this is, I mean, it's not a job. It's a passion. It's a business. And we don't have to live it 24 seven. And like you said, you know, I'd, I'd love to get to the place where I could just check out for a month and know things are going to hum and be gone. I'm not, I'm not there yet. One of these days we'll get there. <laughs> I'm actually not there yet either but if you look at my at my uh life you're like man how's he do that because i went on a 35 day road trip this summer with my kids and my wife and i was on the phone two three hours a day but i was not at the ranch not once in 35 days you know um which is a start you know the other thing that's really interesting though is i don't live on the ranch this morning i left the house i left the house at five o'clock and i drove out here and I made a couple stops and looked at some cattle that I bought and, and started this call with you at six, but I don't live on the ranch. So I can shut off, go home and I live in town and it's not my preference. I grew up on the ranch. I love the ranch. I would love to live here, but it makes me a better rancher in my opinion and a better businessman, especially because I get to drive by a hundred ranches on the way here and look at what people are doing and be like, oh look at that guy, man, he's really screwing up. Oh, look at this guy. I want to be more like him. And if there's a problem at the ranch, I'm forced to have a system in place that somebody else can take care of it because I'm not here. You know, I can't run home and then highway patrol calls me and says there's cows on the road. I need to make one phone call to somebody who's going to go get those cows. In. And if I'm here on the ranch and I live here, I would feel very guilty if I wasn't the one out there getting the cows in with the guy that is supposed to get the cows in. You with me? It, I, I would feel like that. a total and complete jerk, you know, so. I could appreciate that. I live, uh, it takes me about 15 minutes to get from my house from the time that my truck starts moving out of the driveway. 15 minutes later, I'm rolling into ranch headquarters. So I, I can appreciate that. And the being able to say, all right, I'm leaving work, I'm checking out and you check out of that mental headspace and you put that work stuff aside and you have that 15 minute drive to get home, it puts you back in, you know, I can get back in a home headspace where I'm not, you know, always focused on work things. But I also see the other side of the coin. Like there's a lot of times I say, man, it'd be pretty cool to be, you know, to live out on the ranch. And instead of, if we wanted to go out and tour around, instead of getting in the truck, driving 15 minutes to the ranch, then getting in the side-by-side -side to go tour around, it'd be nice just to walk out of the house and jump in the side-by-side -side and be able to go tour around the ranch or, you know, go look at the cows at night without, you know, without an extra 30 minutes of driving. But 
there there's definitely both sides of that coin and i can see pros and cons pros and cons just stacked to the ceiling on both sides of it yep one of the reasons that we haven't um that we haven't built anything and moved out there probably the similar one of the similar reasons you haven't moved back to the ranch is it just costs so friggin much to build a house that's a really awesome uh Awesome segue into some of the other stuff that we're doing, but yes, uh, you're hundred percent right about that. And um, it costs a lot to build a house, especially in California. <clears throat> but the even bigger thing about it is I can never sell a house that I'm putting on the ranch. Like if I live in town and yeah. I, put a, I have a million dollar house in town and I get sick or injured or want to move, I sell that thing. I have zero emotional attachment to it, zero family legacy to it. <clears throat> and I can cash in on that money and take it wherever else <clears throat> to do whatever else I want with it with no guilt. If I come <clears throat> home to my family ranch, build a million dollar house or a hundred thousand dollar house or whatever. And uh, everything's a million bucks out here. So it's <laughs> um, um, like, a, yeah, that's like a, it's like a shanty most of these places, but um, I can't sell that asset ever because I'm not the I'm not the I'm not that leg I'm not the guy that's going to sell the family ranch, right? You know, and um, <clears throat> great point. Maybe my kids will, but I'm not going to build a big asset that's basically a liability and has tied up all my cash. And my parents did that when I was growing up in the 1980s. They built a $200,000 house up on the hill, beautiful house, overlooks the whole ranch. And my parents don't have any money, <laughs> but they have a big house up on the hill that, you know, is basically a liability to them. And someday when they give it to their kids or me or grandkids, somebody's going to sell it and reap all the benefit of that. I hope it never happened. And well, for sure, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. Um, but um, yeah, I don't want to tie my money up into that. So there, um, there lies the next part of the story that we can talk about um and that's the ranch that you came to for the grass-fed exchange a few years ago that was is in 19 i don't yeah i can't remember 40. yesterday so it was something it was three or three or four years ago it was the santa rosa grass-fed exchange that was awesome by the way i loved having everybody out there it was a, like a dream come true i'd love to do another tour and when I'm we were there to... like right after we left it quit raining and everything started looking ugly Right. And that what yeah, you about them? a month, a month and a half later. Yeah. Usually June or July, we July, we kind of dry up and <laughs> it's a Mediterranean. So half the year it's supposed to rain. It doesn't usually anymore. And then half the year it's dry, 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 like nothing. I, I'm trying to find the words to like kind of describe a little bit what the place looked like when I was there a couple of years ago. It's just Ireland. It was it almost looked like right, a paradise yeah. of green grass, yeah. you know, like mid shin high, just beautiful rolling hills, black cattle, you know, not overly bright enough light to see. It was just, you know, it, I just remember driving in and then being struck like, wow, grass here looks really good. You know, these hills, not bad to get up and down. This just looks like a pretty good place to ranch. One of the few, I'll, I'll say this. In the last oh, three, four years, I've traveled around, you know, quite a bit. There's not very many ranches that I'd, that I'd trade places with, but yours is one of them. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's cool. That's a great, I mean, that's a nice honor. And thank you so much for that. And we are super blessed. And I, I, uh, I mean, I have to give all the credit to the people that came before me. So my great grandfather, Angelo, somehow he, he found out about this area from Italy. You know, it's like, how do you know when he left there, he was coming here, you know, it's like, how do you know about that? You know, 120 plus years ago, but, um, I love it. I love it here. There's a tons of advantages and tons of disadvantages. Uh, mostly the disadvantages are too many people and just too much, a lot of the regulation and it's just a hard state to do business in, but there's also tons of advantages. You know, we pay the toll to be here, but it's an epic. I could be in a t-shirt most of the, most days of the year, except for the middle of summer. When it's foggy and windy, it's colder than it is in, you know, Nebraska when it's cold. You know, it's like it's freezing. And they say the coldest, the coldest winter ever was a summer in San Francisco. And that's really, really true. It's just super bitter, dense humidity. That's freezing. I mean, it's not freezing on the gauge, but it is cold. It'll go right through you. Well, it's 24 degrees when I woke up this morning and snowing and it's the high is supposed to be almost 60 tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our, cool. our wild bipolar weather here in the plains you know 40 45 degrees of temperature swing in a day um yeah it'd be nice to live somewhere where i could wear a t-shirt all year <laughs> <laughs> maybe new zealand i don't know everybody says if you know if stuff goes bad where would you go and i'm like i went to new zealand a couple of years ago two three years ago and i love new zealand it's so similar to here except it's like the, it's like 1960, you know, when it comes to regulation and, and sophistication of everything, it's just, it's just way more chill. Um, so I like that. So we talked about earlier that the vast majority, you know, 80, 85% of our grass fed beef is imported. And a lot of that does come from New Zealand. And that's because they don't have they don't grow a lot of grains there and they don't have any feedlots. Is that about right? You know, I think that I actually think that industry is influencing them more. The conventional industry is influencing them. They're starting to be more feedlot type situations and they do grow some grain. Um, and they grow some corn. There's places that they grow corn. Um, but I think it's just the environment there to grow grass is very, very good. And, you know, they can grow more food on those islands than they can consume. So they have, and they don't have any markets besides the Pacific Rim and us. So when it comes to, um, you know, they're very progressive producers, very progressive, and they know their numbers, which is awesome. And they have a really good consistent product. And so when it comes to um, how they're going to make money, I mean, they, they're pretty progressive about marketing and about, um, you know, finding markets and they have to, it's similar to me when I came back to the ranch, it's like, I have to do something different because there is no way we can keep doing what we're doing now and still make a living. So they, they have to figure it out. They do. They, they started with lamb and, you know, importing piles and piles of lamb. And now it's hard to find U.S. lamb in a grocery store. Um, so they've done a great job capturing that market. And they're doing the same with grass-fed beef. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, I can't fault them. And the, the guys are the people that I've, I've had the New Zealander, uh, New Zealanders and Australians here to the ranch, like on tours. And they're just good, awesome people, just like me and you. And, you know, if they were my neighbor, I would love for them to be my neighbor, honestly. Um, I've never met an pretty... Australian I didn't like. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. So trying to wrap my head kind of around the timeline, we're, you're just a couple of years older than me. It sounds like you came back uh, to the ranch early 2000s. Is that right? Uh, let me think. No. Uh, yeah, 2005. Yep, 2005. Okay. So 2005, you started to make some big changes with uh, fencing and the way the cattle were grazing. When did you start adding other species? Um, so we had, um, see if I can get my thing to work here. Are we good? I can't hear you. I think we're on your phone, not on your AirPods. Yeah, we're on one AirPod, but not the other one, but. That's all right. I'll, if I have to, I'll just go speakerphone. But um, we had sheep. So my grandmother had like started out with two little sheep and it grew it up to like 150 or so. And <clears throat> I hated the sheep, but I love lamb, you know, but I still don't really like the sheep. But our lamb is like the best lamb on the planet, in my opinion. It's not just ours. This just this region has amazing lamb. Um, and it's actually my favorite meat is, is really good grass fed, milk, you know, milk fed lamb. We harvest them, you know, six to eight months old, still nursing. And they're just little piggies and they're so delicious. Um, and then about, well, let me just take a step, a, a step back in the history of this. When we first came home in 2005, my whole goal was to sell three or four loads, pot loads of calves, you know, weaned to the highest bidder anywhere around the country. And that's what we did for the first three years. We didn't do any grass fed, grass finished, anything. It was whole, whole pot load, 750 pound calves to the highest bidder. They went to Lyman, Colorado. They went to, um, some went to Nebraska. Some went to Harris Ranch here in California. And I was all into quality. I wanted to see what the data would show. They give us the data back and um, we were like, you know, 85% choice and 5% select and a few, a couple percent prime, whatever, something like that. Um, maybe it was 10% select and a couple percent prime. I don't know the, all, the data, but the thing that got me, really got my antenna up is about 30% of our calves were getting sick and they were falling out of the natural program. And I was like, why, why is this happening? We don't have sick calves at home. Why is this happening? And right around the same time, and this will probably get some of your viewership wound up, but it is what it is, is I um, read the book, The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. And he traces a steer's life, you know, from the ranch all the way through the feedlot, you know. And I was like, man, you know what? I don't agree with everything in this book, but he brings up some good points about how corn drives, you know, everything. And it's really subsidized. It's really heavily subsidized products that are driving all of these decisions around the country. And I was like, it was like, duh, I live in the Bay area. We need to sell, you know, we want to make a premium. We need to sell direct to consumers. 
and we need to give them what they want. And in agriculture, it's like, well, it's not efficient or it's, you know, this is not better than that. And I'm like, well, give the consumer what they want and tell them the story that they want to hear and charge them appropriately for it. And guess what? You can live, you can build a brand and live a good life. So that's what we, we started doing. I, I did line in the sand said, we're not going to sell the feedlots anymore. We're going to start our own brand. That was 13 years ago. Like next week, we started Stemple Creek Ranch. We came up with a logo, five-page website, and we started selling whole beef, half beef, and quarter beef to anywhere in the Bay Area. You pick it up at the CDFA butcher. And Lisa, my wife, Lisa said, you need to put lamb on the website. And I'm like, what? I'm not putting. I'm not putting lamb on the website. I hate sheep. Blah blah blah. I'm a rancher. You know, I'm a cattle. Stipple guy. Creek Ranch. We got cows yeah, on the damn like, logo. We're, yeah, we're not doing lamb. So, um, kicking and screaming. I uh, we put lamb on the website, and within, you know, a week or two of our website going live, we started getting orders for beef, and lamb. But we got a lot more orders for lamb, and <laughs> the people that tasted our lamb loved it and they're like that's the best freaking lamb we've ever eaten and then they tried our beef so it was like what's you know my wife was right and people love the lamb and now lamb has become its own enterprise when you look at our revenue it's a very small percent of our revenue versus cattle but it's one of our most profitable enterprises and if i wasn't so obsessed with cattle and all that i'd probably have 10 times the amount of sheep and no cattle or or you know a few cattle but margin you have to it on a sheep isn't there well you have to sell a lot of lambs to make much money you know we sell 500 lambs at 300 bucks a piece you know you're talking 150 grand or something like that you're not you know we're not talking lots and lots of money but when you take those 500 sheep and you put them in with all of your cattle we're, we're raising probably about 20% more um, pounds of something to sell off of our ranch. But sheep are a totally different management thing. So um, <laughs> keeping them alive, everything loves to eat them, including coyotes. Um, and, and then for the soil health thing, which we can talk more about, they're actually miserable for soil health in my operation. Because they, right. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get Forbes established, right? Okay. And um, like chicory plantain, brassicas, you know, other types of things, because we're trying to get roots deep into the soil. And if, unless you have a, a very aggressive rotational system with your sheep, they will just eat, eat, eat. Like they'll eat a chicory plant until they, until it's dead. They'll eat it down into the ground. And the same with any of these taprooted plantains. You can look and be like, oh, there's no clover and there's no plantain and there's no chicory in this field. And you move the sheep out and a month and a half later, you see all kinds of chicory and stuff. They just eat it, eat it, eat it, eat it. And they prefer it over grass. And um, the way that we manage right now is there's a bunch of coyotes around here. We do what we can to abate them. But um, I was, was going to ask about predation, like yeah yeah well we have that issue um but we have guardian dogs with the sheep we have two marema akbash guardian dogs and they're awesome except managing them is unlike managing a whole other class of livestock 
one day they're five miles away at the local post office. The next day they're in town. The next day they're sleeping on the road, you know, if you don't have a really good fence. So we have really good fences and we still have that problem. But because of the really good fences, we just keep the sheep in those areas where the really good fences are. And um, it's not the best management practice for soil health because we end up set stocking certain pastures more that are sheep pastures. And then we'll end up, we end up compromising our um, um, diversity in the pasture and, and we get a lot of compaction with sheep. They call it a sheep foot for a reason. They're little teeny feet, but they compact the heck out of everything. And so for those reasons, it's 100% management. I would like to have a lot more sheep, but I need to be a better manager to run them with the cows. And um, the dogs don't like the cows around the sheep. And I'm in the grass finishing business. So if I run the sheep and the cattle together, the dogs chase, um, the, dogs chase the cattle, and that's not good for grass fattening animals so <laughs> run a couple uh, pounds a day off of exactly yeah so i'm like this is not working so um i've often contemplated getting rid of all the sheep and i'm not going to do it because they're they're really a good um a really good business for us but um that's just that's just what it is okay so when did when did you start getting into pigs um, so we started selling direct to consumers. Um, I'm going to go for a little walk here. Somebody just pulled in. Uh, we started selling direct to consumers about um, 15, 13 years ago. And when we went to the farmer's market, people were wanting, um, people were really wanting to, uh, um, uh, people were really wanting to, uh, eat bacon and i was like okay we can do that we can get some uh we can get some pigs and we put some pastured pigs up and it actually became a, a surprisingly good um surprisingly good uh enterprise and now we do around 200 pigs a year i just got another i buy piglets and then we finish them out on the pasture they eat mostly grain um but they also root around and eat other stuff too and uh yeah so do the pig, so what, what's your rotation generally like cows first, then sheep, then pigs, or, or is it something different? You're muted. I got, sorry. Yeah. I just muted on purpose because some guy just pulled in and we're doing a little, uh, a little movie thing for, for, um, a Japanese TV station today, actually. And they're here to do some filming. So anyway, <laughs> we'll do that after this. We're just getting um, so, all warmed up. Yeah, exactly. So what was your um, question again about the pigs? Uh, just when did you get oh, into rotation? Pigs? Oh, yeah. Um, pigs because is, people you know, like to eat bacon cheeseburgers, right? Pretty much, yeah. And at the farmer's market, if we're selling one thing or, you know, if we're only selling one thing, we're going to get only the people that want beef. But if we can pile on different products, then we get beef, lamb, pork, bacon. We can make lots of sausages, all these kinds of things. So. And there's um, always that chance that the customer that's coming just to buy bacon is going to buy something else. hundred percent. Yeah. So now we have beef jerky. We have the whole thing, but um, the, the pork is actually, actually probably our number one enterprise in terms of profitability, but it's not, 
we don't really want have plans to scale it into the thousands or anything like that but it's but it's uh, super easy we buy these pigs for well i say that now and now i'm probably gonna have a bunch of sick pigs but we buy these pigs for like 100 150 bucks at you know it's wieners 60 50 60 pounds we put them with self feeders up in our big eucalyptus grove that's not used for anything else. And it's basically wasteland. We put hot wire fence around it. And we put, uh, we fill the self feeders with a non GMO organic feed. And the pigs eat whatever they want. And about six months later, we harvest them and sell them for, you know, five or six bucks a pound on the rail. And we make like four or 500 bucks a pig. Um, so it's pretty crazy the amount of margin and you can do a lot of turnover you go back to dallas mounts uh or ranching for profits deal the three secrets to profit or increase gross margin and uh, decrease overheads and sell more you know um sell more widgets so only way to do, do it the, we can do that turnover over and over and over and and yeah it's good so back to predation on the lands like you know, so you got these two big guard dogs running around. I can't, I can only imagine what it's like trying to deal with a predator pressure where you're at being pretty much surrounded by people that aren't necessarily of the same political alignment or, or that really understand why that's a problem for you. So, you know, if you just dropped into my ranch, you would never know that we were surrounded by all these people because it's pretty, um, I mean, it's pretty rural out here. And we, we still live in an area that, you know, um, here at the ranch, like you, you basically always have a rifle in the front seat of the pickup. And um, it's not uncommon for people to pull over on the side of the road and shoot a coyote still here. Okay. Um, and so our neighbors all absolutely despise coyotes and are always, you know, hunting them. But we, what really got us going is we, um, we were surrounded by some other sheep ranchers that, that they would basically get the coyotes before they came to us. And we were a smaller <laughs> operation. As we got bigger, somehow the coyotes figured out that they could skirt that and they could come to us and skip everybody else. And they, um, they came here and they, we lost 43 big lambs, like 80 pound lambs in 30 nights. Oh, and I think that was 2007. That's right. Or somewhere. It was 2009, something like that. And I was just pulling my hair out because they'd come in and they'd kill one, and they'd eat a hind leg and then they'd kill another one and they'd eat the liver and they'd, they'd kill a third one and they'd eat the ears off of it. And then they wouldn't come back. You know, I was like middle of the night. I was up trying to like, how am I going to get these things? I got the dogs. And we lost zero where the dogs were. I've never lost a lamb where the dogs are. Sometimes we have lambs in different pastures and I still lose them. But right now, uh, one of my neighbors to the south, he's losing, he's probably lost 15, 20 this year. And he's the rabid coyote hunter. Every day, that's what he does. He gets up in the morning, he hunts coyotes, and he's losing lambs. And I'm really literally right across the fence and knock on wood, we haven't lost any to coyotes this year. So um it just got light now that we had this conversation i'll go out and there might be a couple kills but <laughs> uh, I, hope not. I hope not yeah i hope not too but yeah so we um 
we aggressively abate them is what I say. Usually it's with lead poisoning. Now it has to be copper poisoning in California because you're not supposed to shoot lead bullets anymore, but um, <clears throat> you can shoot copper bullets. They, they make just about the same size hole as a lead one does, I think. <laughs> uh, it all depends. Yep. So you mentioned earlier about spreading composts. Let's talk about that. Because I remember when I was there um, for that grass-fed exchange tour, you were talking about making compost tea, I believe. Or, or was it maybe biochar tea? I can't, I can't remember. Things are a little fuzzy. Sun's coming up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it was all compost tea. Um, we would make compost tea or worm tea or use like, you know, fish hydrolysate, which is, you know, crab, salmon, um, all ground up into a hydrolysate, but it's super high in, um, in nutrients, especially calcium and um, nitrogen and some of the other things that we need. But calcium is actually our biggest limiting nutrient out here uh, we need a lot of calcium and it's super expensive to to buy it so i'm trying to find other byproducts like you know that are easily spread that we can use to to increase soil life and biology so <clears throat> we've tried a lot of different things but compost is something that we see a pretty big increase in quality of the forage when we apply it and basically what we do is we get free wood chips from wherever we can get free wood chips. So it's carbon, right? right. And then we mix it with, we mix it with manure from our neighbor uh, chicken farmer, which is super high nutrient dense, tons of um, phosphorus. with nitrogen. Yeah, exactly. Tons of phosphorus and nitrogen. We mix that with the wood chips. We turn the pile at least four times. Um, and get it to at least 140 degrees to kill any other uh, seeds. And then in the fall, before it rains, we spread that compost onto the pastures that need it the most. And, you know, every year we do, I don't know, 3,000 yards or so of compost. And- uh, A big compost pile. It's a pretty, we have five, five rows, five windrows of compost that we turn. And the other thing that's been really cool, like I just learned this as I go, and maybe it's real common in other parts of the country, but here it wasn't, is before we spread the compost, we actually put a bunch of seed on the compost pile. We just lace the, the compost pile with seed. And then as the trucks go, spread the compost, they're, also, they're spreading the seed at the same time. And it's one less pass on the ranch. It's far from perfect in terms of coverage and all that but it's a way that we can get seed out there very cheaply and um, with fertility and hopefully increase, you know, diversity in our pastures. Both, we do that a lot with grazing, but we do it a lot faster when we, um, when we actually introduce new seeds and fertility. Um, and that's, you know, we could do a whole show about that too, because a lot of the holistic management people are like, oh, you don't ever have to put a seed and you don't ever have to put, fertilizer i'm like yeah you don't have to but in my environment you're not going to see rapid change unless you do those things just by grazing you're not going to see rapid change um you will see change but not and and maybe a different grazer that's better than me would see better change but i've been very very 
um, aggressive in our grazing, maybe too aggressive at times, especially early on. And uh, um, yeah, I, I haven't seen the results unless I added new, uh, new fertility and or new seeds that I really like. So we use a lot of um, a few different New Zealand variety seeds that are drought tolerant for our environment. And yeah, they, they outproduce the forage that's here two to one. So, so I'm kind of curious the, about your forage base. You've talked about, you know, really putting in a lot of work to try to get Forbes reestablished. Are you, I don't know how to put this. Like what grass was there before us white people came and screwed it up, I guess is what <laughs> I'm really asking. Like what should be there compared you to- You know what? Um, I can't tell you, I dream about that, but I can't tell you what was here, but I, I do believe it was a lot more diverse. There was a lot more, um, there was a lot more Forbes than there is now. And, um, there was a lot more perennials than there is now. We have about 13 types of, of, uh, perennial native perennials that grow here. And really the native perennials compared to the introduced forages are very poor in terms of um, overall biomass and palatability. And they're, they're usually grow in places that the plows and the discs could not go a hundred plus years ago. Right. So, uh, you know, in the 18, mid 1800s, this area was settled by a lot of Irish and you know, Irish love potatoes and they love farming and they farmed everything you can get uh, a plow on. And you can still see the lines of erosion, you know, hundred plus years later. It's pretty crazy. Where, you can see that a yeah, hundred years later. Yeah. And I believe that we've lost, I believe we're, we're farming on subsoil right now. I think we've lost um, two to three feet of topsoil in the last 150 years and with that we've lost a lot of the seed bank so that's my story a, a lot of the uh i gotta change you to uh, i'm gonna lose the i'm gonna lose let's see yours i just changed it to my speaker because i ran out of battery here can you still hear me yep yeah. we're still here um a lot People that come here say, well, your seed bank is still active and <clears throat> all these all these natives are still there, but I just don't see them. And mostly where we see them is the rocky areas that didn't never seen a, an implement or their areas that we've, I mean, the, the introduced forages, a lot of them are frankly are not super palatable when they're mature, but when they're young, they are like foxtail and, you know, wild oats and you know some of the rip gut brome and some of these other things right now they look amazing but in the two months when they go to seed they're not amazing for the cattle or you know your dogs or anything else and we have a lot of those plants around here and they are very prolific they will outcompete any of the native stuff and where they're outcompeting the native stuff you can't I mean, you can't even see the native stuff so i don't know if that answered your question but it was an answer. I don't know if it answered it, but it was an answer because I, I don't have, I guess my, my experience is a little bit limited because 
all I've all I have is native range. So, and of the ranch, there's maybe uh, not even ten percent of it that was ever farmed at any point. And the last of it was put back to grass in the '80s, in the late '80s. But most of it was put back. A bunch of it was put back in the '50s. It was only broke out for you know 50, 60 years. And even those places that were farmed in the '50s, I can go there and like. And just like you said, it's it's almost like it's on subsoil. Things are still, you know, there's still a lot of pedestaling. And I've grazed through there at ultra high densities. I've had super long rest periods. It just takes so friggin' long to get those native plants reestablished, to get their roots down there and start building that ground cover up. You're right. We we farmed out most of the topsoil and not just there where you are in California, but here in the plains in the desert southwest, even further east in the Corn Belt. I don't think there's very many of us that are actually still working on, on good topsoil. I think most of it is gone. I don't think that, I think that very few people have an idea of what really good topsoil actually looks like. Mm-hmm. Well, and then I was always the, under the assumption, you know, following Gabe Brown and Alan Williams and all these guys, which those guys are badass in my opinion, they really are doing some awesome stuff and they're the future of, agriculture at my my level and hopefully bigger but um i was always the assumption we'd build the soil down and really what i'm learning the more i get into this is we're building the soil up but if you go to a fence line in the middle of my pasture you know a legacy fence line or you could even see old legacy fence line the fence line is higher and then it goes down to the pasture and is that is that compaction you know over here or is that soil loss over here or is that different species diver, uh, diversity over here you understand what i'm saying it's like or is it because they haven't been grazing underneath the fence and that biomass is built up and it's actually and it's growing and what's on the sides of the of it out in the pasture is staying the same height i i don't know i've seen some of the same things and i think i think a lot of it is compaction here because all like if you go along our fence line all the all the voles and the gophers and everything they're under the fence line like you can you can you can stick a penetrometer three feet deep under the fence line but out in the middle of the pasture where the cattle are walking it's not that way so yeah um there's just more life under there and um not necessarily more species but it's a challenge that i'd give to anybody in in our industry is go look on the side of the road in the bar ditch or wherever you go whatever you call that in different parts of the country and see what's growing there and then go out in the middle of your pasture and see what's growing there and there should be natives all over the side of the road theoretically um but there's not in a lot of our areas there just there's not there is less compaction but there's not natives growing wildly um, but I learn a lot from the side of the road, honestly, because I'm like, well, whatever's growing there, how can I get that to grow there? And it's either rest, compaction, fertility, you know, whatever. Um, so just trying to be observant, and pay attention to what's going on. I, I learn a lot. Um, there is a, actually, there's a pretty cool, it might, it might be on Instagram. We try and if you want to know what's going on around here, you can jump on Instagram. I don't really do TikTok. I know you do. You do a great job with it, but um since you brought it up where what's all your socials it's all stemple creek ranch right at stemple creek 
okay. everything. I, at least that's what I, I think. I, I actually, a lot of times people are like, oh, you, you uh, ate a New York steak last night. I'm like, well, no, but I did this weekend. I, I, I'll do <laughs> I, our media and uh, because I can't do it all. Like I go on live, live and some of these other things because she texts me and says, you got to go live this week because every time you go live, our sales go up. I'm like, okay, so I'll go live. So, and she probably tells you when to do it too. Like you need to go live uh, at five o'clock because that's when all of our people are online. We're kind of beyond that because I'm rogue about everything. So like <laughs> tells me that I need to do it. I do it less. And when, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not really that bad, but <clears throat> I just, I'm a scatterbrain and I have so many other things going on that a lot of times I just forget for a week at a time or there's something else that's more important, but, but um, we, I did one, I just posted one about regenerative agriculture and it's a, it's a, I went out in the field in January, dug up a big old chunk of beautiful black cakey soil and it was loaded with worms. And I'm like, I gotta tell people about this. And um, yeah, it's on one of our, it's, I think I have it on LinkedIn and I have it on, on Instagram. It might even be on TikTok, but I didn't put it on TikTok. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a team around in my social media. So if I, uh, if I post something stupid, I usually have fans tell me pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I actually, the, the current lady that's helping me right now is a cousin, but a lady before that super sweet, biggest fan of us ever. And she would post stuff on there like aren't we the best look at this we're the best ranchers there is on the planet i'm like <laughs> i would call her and I'd say, karen take that off right now this is me talking not you talking right so um i'd say take that off right now and she she would take it down but it's like i would never say i'm the best rancher on the planet or our beef is the best you know so it's just uh <laughs> If you ever see something like that, I guarantee it's not me that says it. I want other people to say it about us, but not. I don't want to um, to be the one saying it. Jeezo, Pizo. Can you see up or no? Do what? Do you see all the text messages popping up on my phone, or is it just does that not show up on the Zoom? That doesn't show up on a Zoom. I just see you poking your screen. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> So we'll circle back to uh, to compost. So now you're you're putting that on like with a bulk spreader. Uh, you mentioned compost tea, and I've heard that come up several times. So what is compost tea, and how do you make it? Oh, <clears throat> there's a lot of different things, and it's just like a recipe for cake or cookies or whatever. But compost tea is basically where you take some nutrients it's either compost or worm castings or a combination of and you can brew it actually in a brewer for anywhere from one to 24 hours like and ad adding heat and getting it's not heat it's air and okay. the air feeds the microbes and and makes them um proliferate but you can make you can make bad compost tea um and have the wrong kind of bugs proliferate um so <clears throat> there's i'm far from an expert at this but sometimes you think you're doing the right thing you could actually be doing the wrong thing um so 
what what we do with it is we use worm castings and you go, we only have a small amount of worm castings right um, because it takes a lot of worms to make very much worm casting so we take like a tea bag which is this probably double like two gallons like a ziploc baggies okay. and we put into a 275 gallon tote like a plastic tote and there we have an aquarium pump with a two inch pipe on it with holes in it and we turn that baby on and it blows air through this you know 275 gallons of water and then we add other things like fish hydrolysate or whatever else we're trying to do uh, liquid calcium and then we have a little uh, little spreader it's a basically it's only a 55 gallon um, <clears throat> applicator that we put on the back of the side by side and drive around and spread it out we can get we get about 20, excuse me, 20 gallons per acre. So it's not super efficient, um, but I do believe it works. And in certain areas that we can't go with a truck or a tractor, we'll go with a side-by-side to increase fertility. And um, I can't say that there is a big economic benefit to it. I'm just exploring exploring but the way we measure that is with bricks so i had nicole masters you probably um have met or, or heard of her before she's an amazing agroecologist from new zealand and you really to the ranching reboot podcast oh nice yeah she she really blew my mind about it was probably 10 years or seven or eight years ago at a ranching for profit meeting we were there and she was a consultant um and i'm like i need to have you on my ranch so we um she actually got me applying seawater to the pastures and increasing bricks and i was like you know there's no way sense. yeah there's no salt you're gonna spray salt on your grass and it makes it sweeter so okay especially when we talk about bricks too much more what is bricks okay especially when we're only like two miles or four miles from the ocean and all of our fence posts and everything rot out because of all the salty air i'm like well how can you apply salt to your pasture and actually see a benefit? But bricks are basically the levels of sugars in your grass. So like in the wine industry, I don't know if any of you drink wine, but <clears throat> the, the vintners or the wine growers, winemakers, they harvest the wine when it's at the right amount of, or the grapes when it's the right amount of bricks, sugar, so that they can um, get the flavorful wine that they want and get the alcohol, alcohol content they want. <clears throat> and they'll they'll let the grapes get mature so they're like 17 bricks or 21 bricks depending on what type of dry wine or they're trying to make it's the same with grass basically <clears throat> like our planted oats um, will be 10 or 12 bricks so higher in sugars than um, some of the you know perennial ryegrass at certain times of the year um, so it's fun for us to go through pastures and look at different um, different species of plants and be like, oh, okay, these forbs are actually higher in bricks than this, you know, clover. And it tells you a lot about what implement or inputs you put in and how they react to grow for the bricks. Um, I look at it as a way, is an amount of photosynthesis that's happening because the bricks at six in the morning are going to be different than they are at four in the afternoon after a long day of sunshine. Right. But, Peak solar. Yeah. If we take one area that we apply milk to, 
foliar. Like we went over an acre of and just put milk mm-hmm. and then acre and we put seawater and we went over an area and we put seawater and milk and we went over an area and we put fish oil and then we went over an area and just put water and then we went over an area and did nothing and you went back and you tested all the bricks and the area you put milk fish and seawater actually went up to 21 and everything else was 10 well then it was like okay there's there must be some benefit here and hopefully those plants are also feeding the soil and feeding the microbes in the soil and building soil up like we've been talking about. But for sure, we know Alan Williams has some studies that show the higher the bricks when you harvest it with your cattle, the more gain you're going to get. So that's where I'm instead of making, and this is a Nicole Masters thing, instead of making lots of forage like McDonald's quality food, I want to make lots of forage but have it be Japanese quality like michelin star restaurant food so my cattle can eat less of it and gain more weight and our our whole goal is for them to eat lay down chew their cud get fat eat lay down chew their cud get fat and that's why certain times of the year we move them rapidly like five times a day because we want them to eat lay down get fat eat lay down get fat and repeat um Yep. I dig it. So I've measured, I've had a, I forget what it's called, hygrometer, the thing that measures bricks. I've had one uh, for two years now. And I don't, I try to do all my measuring of bricks between two and 4 p.m. I try to want to hit the peak photosynthesis, which should be, which should lag behind solar noon by about an hour to an hour and a half from what I understand from my research. So here that's between two and four o'clock, depending on the time of the year. Um, and I guess like it's bricks, B-R-I-X, not B-R-I-C-K-S. So if you're trying to Google that term is B-R-I-X. And so what you do and, you know, like specific machinery varies, but basically what you have to do is you get your forage sample and you put it in some kind of a press and takes an awful lot of pressure especially on my dry native forages to get you know just one or two drops of juice out to where i can put on my hydrometer glass to actually test the bricks so i'll I'll share some of my numbers my uh my indian grass in 2020 was running about six to six and a half and this year uh or last year i guess in 2021 my indian grass was almost a full point lower I have, I have no, no reason why I, I, I don't know, but it's one of those things. We just have to keep gathering data to try to understand some of these things. Another very interesting observation that, uh, that I made this year was, I think it was early June. I'd moved some customer cattle into a paddock and there's about 10 head that just booked it to the far corner of the pasture from the gate. And they went over there and they started grazing. I said, I want to go see what they're grazing. So we buzzed right over there in the gator, got there, and they're grazing, they're grazing this clover plant that was about, oh, maybe three or four inches tall, and you could barely see it from all the grass that was around. So real quick, we gathered up some of that, uh, some of that clover. I put it in my press, and I smashed it, and it came out to 24 bricks, and this was at like 10 o'clock in the morning. And I thought, okay, great. 
we'll come back at two. We'll come back this afternoon and see what this is doing and, you know, see, see if the BRICS level has gone up during the day at all. Well, I went back over there at two o'clock and I couldn't find any clover. They had cleaned every, every single stem, every leaf of it off that hilltop. And I swear I walked out there for probably a half hour and I couldn't find any of that clover, even went to the bar ditch right outside the fence and looked, and I couldn't find any. So I can't tell you what it was when it was really good, but I can tell you first thing in the morning when I moved in there, it was, I mean, super high. 24 bricks is, is pretty good for native clover. Yep. And you'd want to, I mean, that's just being observant. Once you figure that out, you want to figure out how to make more of that. Right. Right. And, you know, I, here, that's just, uh, those kind of clovers are a product of, of late spring rains and enough rest. And the rest I can do. I can do that no problem. Is getting the timely rains to grow these different forages is something that we struggle with pretty often. Something else, have you heard like the correlations between gains, daily gains and, and BRICS numbers of forage with cattle? Do you, have you heard those numbers? I, I have heard them. I know Alan, uh, one of the Alan Williams presentations I was at with the, pardon me, with the um, uh, soil health consultants, they share some of that data, but it's, uh, it's a steady, I mean, it'd be like what you want your stock performance to be. Um, because it's definitely increases rapidly as bricks go up, performance goes up, either milk or, or meat performance. Right. I think it was somewhere around, if you're about four bricks, you're going to gain maybe a pound a day. If you could get up around six to eight, you're going to look at more like a pound and a half. Um, get up, get up closer to 10. It looks more like two. Is, is that similar to what you remember? Something like that. Yeah, they they go together. And, you know, there's times of the year that we're gaining three, four pounds a day, but we're only six bricks or five bricks or four bricks, but we can keep their belly full and the rumen of a cow is amazing. And, uh, and they actually will keep, keep gaining, even if it is lower bricks. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just one tool. I try not to get so focused on bricks that it's like, you know, everything revolves around bricks, but it is, an observation tool that helps um, that helps us, especially with inputs. Like it's like if we're gonna actually do worm tea, and the worms, um, pardon me, the uh, the bricks don't go up. Well, then what are we? I mean, we're just wasting time and money and fuel. Um, but if we do it and we double the bricks, well, then yes, it's worth it. But you can also play games with it. You can take sugar and take sugar and make it water. You know suspending in water and um, um, spray that on your pastures and your bricks are going to go way up because it's you're just applying sugar but it's a boom and a bust um, it's a boom and a bust in terms of microbes and then that ends up there's other unintended consequences right so um, a lot of times even when you just apply straight manure to pasture you see a big increase in forage but that's the wrong kind of forage it's the mcdonald's versus the shade panisse or the you know michelin star versus the the just cheap food um and i'm still learning honestly like every day i'm learning more and then every year is different and i'm like what in the heck but it seems like after we've really been in a 
a, a drought since about 2013 here. Um, we came out for a little bit, we're back in, but it seems like this year, all of the, the last 10 years of putting everything together has actually really, um, really benefited us. And we had, you know, we had such an amazing fall in terms of forage growth. Um, and hopefully if we get some more rain, we're gonna have an amazing spring as well. But uh, yeah, it seems like things are starting to come together with the grazing, um, the different biodiverse mixes that we put out when we put them out. And then um, <clears throat> the composting and the pasture management, it seems like we're growing a lot more forage than we have in the past. Okay, good deal. Like improving production, getting more pounds per acre of forage. That's just more pounds per acre of beef you can grow. That's the plan. Yeah, I mean, we. that's the whole plan. Yep. Hey, so we talked about testing bricks. The, the other testing, have you done any carbon testing? Yeah, we actually have. Not me personally, but we're we're um, we're part of this what's called Marin Carbon Project. You can Google that and it'll pop up. But there was uh, about ten years ago we were approached to do compost on our pastures and to measure the benefit of compost versus non-compost. So we got thirty-five acres of pasture that we put into this ten-year study, and we had two hectares in the middle of this pasture that we didn't apply anything to. And then we applied a half inch of compost and a quarter inch of compost to the rest of the pasture and then measured it <clears throat> with multiple different measurement tools. And then seven years later, measured it again. And we're gonna measure it again in another uh, few years just to see what the results are. And uh, actually the results that we have right now are pretty stunning on this, on this area. And it's exciting for me too, because um, what we've seen is that we've seen an increase in carbon in the soil of epic proportions, like seven to 10,000 pounds an acre. And um, we saw it in all three treatment groups. So we did not just see it in the compost groups. We saw it even in the control group, which means our management style is really affecting the carbon in the soil as well as the compost application and but there's other ranches around here that we've and i'm not saying this is good or bad but the compost application made a significant increase in carbon versus the, just just the grazing okay so <clears throat> uh so did you just tell me that this carbon project has proved that your grazing works I think so, but you know, it's not that scientific of a study to be like, well, you maybe you've fed cows over there and that's imported carbon and that's what's increasing your, you know, increasing your carbon in your soil. So there, there could be some of that too. But what I can tell you is the basket of practices that we're doing are increasing carbon in the soil and significantly, like, you know, three to 5,000 pounds a year per acre. Um, there will be a threshold that eventually you know, we can't sequester any more carbon or it'll slow down and maybe it'll be a thousand pounds uh, a year if we already have 10% carbon in the soil, you know, but we also, I can also tell you, and I, I would love, I would actually love to geek out on this and share more, more of this stuff online, but during, we had a 
12 inches of rain in 36 hours in October, which is unprecedented. Never happened before. Okay. That's I was I was jumping with glee, driving around on the side by side in the middle of the rainstorm, and I was taking videos and pictures of everything because that's how I learn a lot. Like it time time stamps everything. And my neighbor's pasture was sheet flow just pouring off of there. One is because there was no residual dry matter, but two is the compaction or other stuff, I guess. It was just pouring off and it was brown, you know, erosion. And then my fence line right next to it, there was nothing, there was no standing water and it wasn't pouring off. And I was like, okay, intuitively, you can measure in a laboratory all you want, but intuitively the pasture is telling us what we want to know. Everybody's pond around me filled up you know, dams, like little, little stock troughs or tanks, you guys call them in other parts of the country. My pond went up about two inches, three inches. I was like, I need this water. I need some runoff. But at the same time, I was like, okay, this is cool. It's going into the ground and it's going to get saturated. It's going to, the carbon is like a sponge. It's going to suck all this up and hold it longer. And then it's going to, when it gets saturated, it'll work its way through the soil to the pond downhill. And that, and that happened. But, uh, it really blew my mind and gave me more and more and more confidence of what we're doing with um, diverse species mix, decreased compaction with, with um, grazing and forbs um, and increased worm life and keep soil cover. Um, all of those things really, really, really allowed us to be the sponge when it rained to capture that water and have it not run off. And when it does run off, it's clear. It's not brown. If it's brown, it doesn't matter if it was brown when you were a little kid and it's still brown when it, when we have a big rain event. What matters is you don't want brown water to leave your property because that's erosion somewhere. So we have to figure out, we have to just pay attention and figure out like what is causing that? Is it no soil cover? Is it compaction? Is it minerals? Is it overgrazing? Is it, what is it? I don't know the right answer all the time, but I know the right answer on my place because I'm, I'm watching it and I'm paying attention. I'm trying to make a difference. It always makes me feel good when we get a big, when we get a big rain that does run off, like a lot of my soils, four to six inches of water per hour. And you could just pour a five gallon bucket on it and it almost disappears once, you know, once the surface tension breaks and it starts going to the soil. But every once in a while, we'll get a really, a really ridiculous rain where we'll get, you know, four inches in 15 minutes. I'm sorry. <laughs> there's not a whole lot of, there's not a whole lot of soil with the healthiest you know forage community on it that's going to soak that much rain you're going to have runoff no matter what but it always makes me feel good when i can go to the north end of the ranch which is all my creeks flow south to north when i can go to the north end of the ranch on one of those big rains and see the creek running three four five feet deep and it's clear and it's not muddy at all that's a good feeling yeah that's awesome so you you guys have something that we don't have and i i I follow your TikToks more than your podcast because I just haven't yet. But I love the beavers that you have on your neighbor's place. And we don't have beavers here, but we have all of our riparian areas are um, heavily forested with willows now. But 20 years ago, they weren't. We've fenced them all off. We've planted willow trees and other diverse species. And now, like, you can't build a dam in California without going to jail. But you, so I'm like, man, to change our water cycle, I really want beavers. And I would say 
you know, if we do this podcast again in 10 years, you're going to, I'll be able to show you the beavers because I'm going to figure out a way to have beavers here. And it's, you know, there's trials and errors and I'm sure people are going to hate it. My neighbors are probably going to shoot them and whatever else, but eventually we're going to see the benefit of this really change the biodiversity of our pastures, the water cycle. And, uh, hopefully grow a lot more forages that we can use uh, the cattle to harvest to turn in or sheep or goats or pigs or whatever it is at that time to harvest and turn into profit for us the whole thing about sustainable or holistic or any of this if you're not profitable then you it doesn't matter like you have to be profitable right right i tell you what i'll make you a deal you get beavers back on your creek the next 10 years i'll fly back out and see it I want to come back out and see beavers on Stipple Creek Ranch. What I need to do is bring some beavers with you, and then I'll. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe yeah. I could bring a couple of those cow skulls you offered to pay way too much money for, too. Not for me. Not for me. For something else. But, yeah. I don't care if you resell them. As long as that margin's in it for me, I'll bring all of them you want. You better grow bigger horns and longer. Not these little, you know, 12-inch things. We need, like, 30 inches on a side. I got a couple. I got a couple. And <laughs> what I, I want to do is back there and, and get one that's 30 inches on a side, but a mule deer. I want to, I love hunting and I want to get back there and harvest some deer in the Midwest. Never, never been back in there. Love to come out and let you deer hunt. But all I can offer you is whitetails, the muleys. I remember mule deer here when I was a kid and guys hunting mule deer and they're not around much anymore. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because you know, we, we've encouraged uh, the population of whitetails a little more or applied. I'm not sure. We just don't have very many mule deer around here anymore. <laughs> but I do remember when I was when I was a kid. Awesome. Well, do you have anything else you want to cover? Or we we. Uh, no, uh, I appreciate your time today. I, I, I do actually have a ton of stuff to cover, but I know you're a busy guy and I know you uh, I know you have another thing this morning. Yeah. Well, I got a few more minutes if you have something else. Otherwise, we'll uh, wrap it up and we can jump on again in another few months or something. Um, well, talk us through some of your stacked enterprises and how they're complementing each other, including like some some of the hospitality things you do. And we can kind of wrap up with that. Oh, that's great. That's a great fit to finish up with. So um, I told you guys that, you know, in 2005, we moved back over here. We first we would sell conventional loads. I read the book, Michael Pollan's book, decided to start Stemple Creek Ranch, started that, um, started educating people about what we're doing. And then the ranch right next door um, to us, like a perfect puzzle piece. I talked to the owner. I needed more grass. I said, hey, he didn't have any kids involved. And I said, hey, if you ever want to sell that ranch, let me know because I'd love a chance to buy it. And he said, I'm never going to sell it. Said, okay. A couple of years later, I wrote him a handwritten note, said, Dave, you know, if you're ever interested in, in selling this thing, zero pressure, but I have some ideas that could make it work. Sent it in the mail. Nothing. I didn't hear a word from him. And then I ran into him at the post office about six months later. And he, uh, he said, Hey, I got your note. Thanks for that. What would that look like? And I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> like, Whoa. Yeah. So, well, we figured out a deal that um, would work for him and for us. And it's this beautiful, beautiful, romantic ranch. Actually, that's uh, a painting of it. I'm sitting here at the ranch and it's just a gorgeous little 
honey hole down here. And so we bought the place and it, it was only 210 acres. But as you can imagine, um, being this close to San Francisco, it's highly desirable, 210 acres. And we had a, you know, we bought it for ranching, not for anything else, but we had to figure out a way to pay for it. So all of these little buildings um, here on the ranch, we basically repurposed them into revenue generating tools. And it goes back to, you know, do you want to build a million dollar house on your ranch and then never sell it and not get any cash flow out of it? And in my case, I want to get cash flow to help me pay for all of um, the improvements, but also be a lifestyle thing. And so I look at this ranch like Rich Dad Poor Dad book of you know three green houses and a red hotel basically we turned all of these um all of these buildings into revenue generating buildings and so we have one barn that's education barn we call it uh, but uh, we have lots of weddings and lots of um, farm to table dinners and lots of other events like that educational events or you know um you know, Nicole Masters or whoever comes out, we have lots of different events and it's kind of a community hub in the barn, but it generates revenue. We have three little Airbnbs here and then we can have our chefs come out here and stay on the ranch um, and see the cattle, see the sheep, see the pigs, eat our products and um, all the weddings and the different events that we have here, they, they use our products and we, we help educate people about regenerative agriculture, why it's important, carbon farm planning, why it's important. Um, they get to taste our product. They love it. Hopefully they go home and they order it. And um, it's really an awesome enterprise. So that's our one enterprise. That's like, okay, so we have ranching um, where we can sell pasture. We can sell hay. We can sell timber from our uh, eucalyptus grove for firewood or for anything. We have pork, which is another enterprise. We have lamb, which is another enterprise. We have custom grazing, which is another enterprise. We have honeybees that there's a local apiary uh, company that basically needs a place to put their bees for half the year. So they bring their bees here and then we sell um, their honey with our Stemple Creek Ranch label. Um, we have Airbnbs, which are another venue source. We have farm to table dinners, which are another um, revenue source. We have events, which are another revenue source. We have tours, which we charge for that are another revenue source. Um, and then we have compost. We could sell the compost if we wanted to. We don't usually. We have worms. We could sell the worms if we want to. We don't do that as well. We have hunting. Um, that's actually not, um, it's not an enterprise. Uh, sorry, my other phone was ringing. It's not an enterprise that we capitalize on right now, but we could really easily. Um, so there's, you know, there's about five or six main enterprises, but entertainment, Airbnb, um, events, beef, cattle, sheep, hay, uh, timber, pork lamb yeah i said that already there's there's a bunch of different ones and the biggest one is beef by far um but they all get stacked on each other and sometimes we do better with one or better with another one but 
it's nice to not have all of our eggs just in that one basket. For sure. And that's, you know, it's important to not have your eggs in one basket. You know, cattle market could drop, something could kill all your lambs, something could kill all your pigs. Something like COVID could happen and all your Airbnb and venue business dries up. So you have to be, you know, it's a good lesson to be diversified to, to, to make sure you still have some income stream, even if things do happen. Right. And that, that COVID thing is a prime example because we, we lost all of our business in one day. All of our restaurant and grocery store, or pardon me, our grocery store business stayed, but our restaurant business went away overnight. And so we had to pivot. But what, since we were already doing direct-to-consumer internet, and since we already um, were um, harvesting and processing beef for grocery stores, I mean, it was it was easy. It was nothing is easy, but it was a good fit for us to grow that business. So that went up. 10 times when our restaurant business went to zero and then hopefully we are going to keep a lot of that business as we progress um and the the event business went to zero but then last year the event business went crazy because everybody was everybody was locked up from uh, covid so or, airbnbs have gone crazy too yeah the airbnbs are as busy as we want them to be um but you know it's it's our it's our home ranch and stuff so we want to be able to pay our mortgage with all of these other enterprises and have the cattle graze for free. That's not really the truth because we charge ourselves um, grazing anyway. So we have a land business and a cattle business that teach us that in Ramsey for Profit School. And the cattle pay fair market rent for the land. But the way I look at it from a big picture is like all of this other stuff is paying my mortgage and the cattle graze for free. So I think that could be a good way to look at it. So if somebody wants to buy meat from Stemple Creek Ranch or book a stay in an Airbnb or check out your event venue, where do we need to go? Uh, Stemplecreek.com. www.stemplecreek.com. You can geek out on everything we're doing there. I don't actually go there very much, but I think there's lots of information there. And uh, I don't do anything with the venue or that's, we have a full-time employee that does that. We, 10 years ago, really 13 years ago when we started, it was me and Lisa. And all we did was worked 24 hours a day, really not 24, but mostly just worked. And about eight years ago, I quit my day job. I still was selling veterinary pharmaceuticals uh, eight plus years ago. I quit my day job and we've grown the business by about eight times in eight years, which has been awesome. Um, and now we have 15 employees, so it's not just me and Lisa anymore. It's me and Lisa, two ranch, two ranch guys. They, they manage all of our properties and, um, we have a plethora of farmers market staff and about four or five that work on the meat side of the business. And we're <clears throat> probably going to be at 20 before the end of the year, because we need more delivery drivers and salespeople and that type of thing. So. That's fantastic. Yeah, we're having fun. <laughs> That's pretty fantastic that your little operation, you know, currently employs 15 and is planning to expand to employ 20. Like that that's pretty incredible, Lauren. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure though, because we can't mess up. We mess up and there's, you know, 15 other people that rely on us too. So um, but we're having fun. And uh I think we have some good momentum here. And 
whole nother show we can talk about growth and expansion if we're going to do it or not because we we need more pasture to to grow we can only do so much here so we're where we have some strategic alliances with other ranchers other local ranchers where i've sold them my mama cows and then i buy their bulls and then i buy their calves back so it's less i don't have to run my good um I don't have to run cows on my good quality finishing ground. We run cows in the hills and other people's ranches. So strategic partnerships. I like <laughs> it. Yep. Oh, before I let you go, is there anything that I forgot to ask you that you need to get off your chest today? Mm, I don't think so. We covered everything. We covered a lot, but uh, most important thing is, I mean, just, if you don't think you can do it, there's probably a way you can do it. Just figure out, I mean, think differently and challenge your own paradigms because we in agriculture have a massive amount of opportunity coming our direction right now. And it doesn't matter who's the president. It doesn't matter who is, you know, what's happening in Russia. I mean, all of those things have an influence, but the truth is people have to eat and this whole um, environmental stewardship on ag land. And I mean, there's just a massive amount of opportunity to be very profitable in the next 20 years. And I'm, I'm pretty much excited about it. I think it's, it's, uh, it's going to be a fun ride for the next 20 plus years. So I agree 100%, sir. Thanks right. for having me. Oh, it's been great, Lauren. I appreciate the time you've given me today. Um, and I guess if there's nothing else, guys, have a great week. Hey, see ya. Hey, thanks, bud. Good yeah. luck with the. Uh...